fellow Pedra Pearls listeners, and welcome back to the December 4th Monday re-release. Today, we are re-releasing an early investigator webinar that originally aired in April of 2021. To view the video version of this podcast, you can click the link in the show notes. This program is called Catalyzing Your Research from Idea to Action. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to the Catalyzing Your Research from Idea to Action webinar. This is a joint webinar with the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance and Society for Pediatric Dermatology. Your hosts this evening are Dr. Jeff Yu, the Assistant Professor of Dermatology and Pediatric Dermatology at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, along with Dr. Lisa Arkin, Director of Pediatric Dermatology, Assistant Professor of Dermatology and Pediatrics at the University of Wisconsin, School of Medicine and Public Health. Um, And we're thrilled for you to join us tonight for this joint PEDRA SPD webinar, which is really focused on catalyzing your research from idea to action. We're hoping to do a deeper dive into both the pearls and the pitfalls of getting your initial idea and your work off the ground. So welcome everyone, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce today, to begin our um, webinar, Lucy Cohn, who's an assistant professor at the University of Colorado and a pediatric dermatology at Children's Hospital of Colorado. Um, Lucy has a PEDRA uh, Career Development Award focused on improving the quality of dermatologic care for underserved populations, and we are so grateful to have you today. Thank you, Lisa. So I didn't realize it until now, but Elena and Leo both have have PhDs and I do not. So my talk um, is sort of through the lens of a clinician trying to be a researcher. And um, I think it's important to keep that in mind. Um, I don't have any official research training. I do have a master's of health sciences, which um, was just an extra year in medical school and not very rigorous in training. In this talk, I will share how I negotiated for my job, where I am in my career now with my grants and mentorship, how I got my grants, and how I'm working on establishing my research expertise. Before we begin, I need to share a little bit about myself. So this is a photo of me standing behind my extended families camp at Crow Fair, which happens every August. Um, I married into a family that is Crow Indian, and this motivates my academic work. My goal is to expand access to pediatric dermatology for American Indian youth, and I am compelled to do this work because I know how difficult it is for American Indians to access dermatology, and it it is unacceptable that there are communities in America that lack access to dermatology. So now I'll switch gears and talk briefly about my training. I completed dermatology residency three years ago at UCSF. This photo was taken on June 30th, 2018, after my last clinic as a resident. And as you can see, my co-resident and I ran out of the clinic building and were overjoyed to be done with residency. And life only got better after training. Um, I did go on to complete my pediatric dermatology fellowship at UCSF. And although it was the same attendings and it was in the same place, I felt like I was a peer in a warm and brilliant community, which made fellowship so much better than residency. And about halfway through my fellowship, I started my job search. I actually didn't know what I wanted to do or what part of the country I wanted to be in. So I kept my search really broad. Um, I interviewed at four academic practices. I interviewed at Kaiser and also one multidisciplinary regional hospital. And at every place, I told people what my ideal job would be. I would only do pediatric dermatology, 
and I would have enough resources to do outreach with Native American communities. And surprisingly, every single place I interviewed at came back with different ways that they could help me do this. Ultimately, I chose University of Colorado because I knew that my section head, Dr. Anna Bruckner, would support my career and she knew what it would take to support a researcher. Her support was evident in our negotiations. When I told her that I wanted to improve access to dermatology for American Indians, she connected me with my, men, my main research mentor today, who is a very senior faculty member in the School of Public Health and director of the Centers for American Indian and Alaska Native Health, which I am a member of. Um, when I asked her for startup funds, she took my ask seriously. And she also gave me enough protected time, which meant that she took my academic pursuits as seriously as my clinics. I was guaranteed 50% protected time in my first three years of practice to build my research. So I started at CU in November 2019, and a month later, I applied for the Weston grant. Um, when I started my job, I did not know that I would be applying for this grant, and I did not have a project that I wanted to do. So I actually met with um, Dr. Bruckner two weeks before the due date with three research ideas, and she helped me pick the, pick the project. And then I wrote the grant in two days. and found someone on campus who was willing to read my grant and edit it. And she basically restructured my writing and I submitted the grant and I got it. And at this time I had no training with writing grants. I didn't know that it, there was like a system, a science involved. I didn't understand what an AIMS page was, um, but I did have a project that was ready to go. And so when I was searching for jobs, I was telling everyone about my dreams of expanding dermatology access for American Indians. and. One of my mentors at UCSF connected me to a pediatrician at Gallup um, Indian Medical Center who needed help with his severe acne patients. He noticed acne is severe in the Navajo youth he treats and it significantly impacts their self-esteem. And he wanted help managing severe acne in his patients and wondered if he could prescribe Accutane. So together we developed the idea to do a virtual acne management curriculum that includes me teaching the pediatricians at Gallup how to prescribe Accutane. And since I wanted to study this curriculum formally with the intent to disseminate it in the future, I needed to do a few things before we can begin. When doing research with American Indians or within any ethnic community, researchers have a duty to engage the community that the research is happening in and impacting. So not only did I discuss this with the pediatricians at Gallup Indian Medical Center, I also needed to seek approval from the Navajo Nation. And as a part of this process, I went to the Navajo Reservation and presented at a regency, regional agency council. This is very much like a town hall. And this is a photo I took when I was there. It was held in a high school gym where, and what you can't see from this photo is that um, the bleachers that I was sitting in were packed uh, with community members. There was at least 200 people there. So I presented at this meeting and afterwards the agency council and community members voted to approve my research project before I could move forward with it. And then the next week, the COVID-19 pandemic began, which greatly impacted Navajo Nation. Um, so we took a year long break from the study out of respect to the community and its priorities in the pandemic. Um, the research is actually slowly starting up again. My next step is to collect letters of support from the CEO of Gallup Indian Medical Center and the Chair of Pediatrics, and then to submit an application to the Navajo Nation Human Research Board. Concurrently, I am also learning how to perform qualitative analysis, how to design surveys so that I can study my intervention in a rigorous manner. And I am also learning dissemination and implementation science 
um, which is the science of creating evidence-based interventions that can be successfully adopted, implemented, and sustained in healthcare delivery in community settings. Um, so this is where I am with my Weston CVA. Um, stay tuned for the results of this study and more projects in this area to come. Now I want to switch gears and talk about the team that helped me get to where I am today and where I'm headed next. So knowing how to ask for help and what to ask for help has been um, one of my major challenges in my first year of doing this research. This is a visual graphic of my mentorship team. The circles in blue are my research mentors and the circles in warm colors are my clinical and social sciences mentors. And I'll go through each mentorship group and share what they've had to offer. So as I mentioned before, my main research mentor is someone who is very senior in the School of Public Health. He is very well funded by the NIH. He's very experienced in community-based participatory research with American Indians. He has a lot of connections with American Indian communities and with um, the American Indian community nationally and within the NIH. He helps me strategize my funding, my career goals, but he is very far removed from doing anything resembling nitty gritty work. And so this is where my methodology and content mentors come in. I have several mentors who help me with the boots on the ground day-to-day -day research questions. Um, they've mentored me through how to write a grant, um, how to go through CU's financial system for grant budget approvals, um, setting research goals in the short term and in the long term, um, how to run an effective research meeting and manage up, who to ask for help, how to prepare IRB protocols for both Navajo Nation and CU Medicine, and um, how to do qualitative research and mixed methods research. I'm also part of a campus group um, called Clinical Faculty Scholars Program, and this is a wonderful weekly work in progress that I'm a part of. It's a campus-wide program funded through CU's C Clinical and Translational Science Awards Program. It's designed to help young investigators, mostly clinicians, obtain a career develop, development award, like an NIHK award. And I actually presented this morning at our weekly work in progress meeting and asked the group um, how I could position myself to be successful for foundation grants this fall and winter, and how these grants align with my long-term goal of applying for an NIHK award. In addition to the 13 faculty members who are part of this group, I also have a few friends around my level that I call on with basic questions. So these are my peer mentors. One of them is a dermatologist at another institution, and she helps me with grantsmanship questions, work-life balance. Um, another one is a pediatric urologist at Children's, and she's about five years my senior, and so she's helped me with how to navigate campus resources, especially understanding how money flows into my division and department, um, which is helpful in understanding how I want to build my career and structure um, my grant um, the money that flows in for my grants. And then separate from the research, I have clinical mentors from fellowship who have helped me with tough clinical cases. Um, Neil Prose is my arts and humanities mentor, and we are co-editors of Pediatric Dermatology's section on arts, humanities, and social issues. And we meet regularly to, to review papers, which we both enjoy immensely, and it's a lot of fun. While managing this large mentorship team, um, I have slowly learned to how to effectively manage up. Um, this is a concept taken from business, but it's very helpful in research as well. Um, so in my case, one of the big things that I've changed in my mentorship meetings is actually preparing for my meetings. And I actually create PowerPoints with every mentorship meeting that I have. Um, I find that it helps summarize my work, um, target my questions, 
and also streamlines the meetings and makes it um, for a very effective meeting with my mentors. After my meetings, especially ones where I discuss a lot of um, to-dos, I, I summarize action items in a follow-up email, and then I hold myself and my mentors accountable um, for the action items that we both agreed to in the meeting. And um, finally, I am very clear with my mentors about meeting frequency and project involvement. I will just ask them outright, how often do you want to meet? Um, so some mentors I meet with monthly, others are on an ad hoc basis, which is usually every one to two months. If I ask them for thoughts on a project, um, I will tell them if they, I would, I would like them to be a part of the authorship when the manuscript is written or not. And I'm also very clear about my future funding opportunities and the goals I have in writing those grants. For example, like obtaining prelim data. And then lastly, I did wanna um, separately stress the importance of sponsors who are different than mentors. Um, as you know, sponsors are people present who present you with an opportunity. And some of my mentors have been sponsors, but the sponsorships typically happen organically. Um, through my sponsors, I have been invited to write a book chapter, um, write a journal editorial, moderate the SBD's virtual journal club, um, direct the AAD's resident rotation for Native American Health Services, and um, be an associate editor for pediatric dermatology. And even my Weston grant was spurred by a sponsor. However, it was up to me to say yes to these opportunities when they came up. And so now I'm working on developing my expertise in my niche field. Um, this involves learning research methodology, but it also involves giving talks, doing research and publishing outcomes, networking with people um, in the mixed methods, dissemination and implementation science, and American Indian spheres. Um, and this established expertise is something that I'll need when I apply for larger grants and when I build relationships with tribal communities going forward. So in summary, don't underestimate the resource of your time in your job negotiation. One mentor is never enough. You should cultivate a team of people who can help you with the specifics and the broads, broad um, issues that you have. Just say yes to opportunities that come your way. This goes for writing grants, as well as papers, chapters, and leadership opportunities because it, because it allows you to develop your expertise in your career. And thank you to Jeff and Lisa for inviting me to speak in the SPD and PJR for making this forum happen. Please feel free to contact me with questions. Lucy, that was an amazing, amazing talk. We're so incredibly grateful for your um, brilliance and your honesty and your vulnerability. And I'm gonna hold all of our questions till the end and move on to Leo, who is a postdoc scholar and instructor at WashU. And he's the first graduate of the two by two, two, two plus two Pedsturm physician scientist track through the ABD. Leo has Derm Foundation funding and a DP5 pending at the NIH to investigating using uh, what he calls skin infrared imaging to assess cutaneous disease in the invisible range. So we're thrilled to have him here. Welcome, Leo. Opportunity to present. And I also um, agree that Lucy uh, gave an amazing talk. Many things that she talked about are things that probably I should have done early on. It would have helped me a lot. So, so um, I am Leo Shmulevich. Um, I'm going to be sharing you with uh, some of the path that I've taken to establishing myself in the future, hopefully, as a dermatology researcher doing uh, imaging uh, research. I do have a couple of disclosures. I'm the current social media, one of the current social media editors for the JID, and I also do some consulting for technology companies. I think we all see this figure from Bologna 
um, towards the very end chapters uh, at, at some point in our training. Um, and whether we uh, do it in journal club or book club or not, um, it depends. Um, but I definitely love this figure. It's one of my favorites from Bologna because it really summarizes um, where the action happens in uh, biology and also in imaging. Because really when we think about our, most of our imaging modalities, they happen right around here, right above 600 nanometers in the visible range up until about a thousand nanometers in the near infrared. And this is called an, the first imaging window because you have good light transmission, not too much absorption by melanin and, um, most imaging modalities like to operate here. But I have found that there's really quite a bit of opportunity up here where no one really has done too much exploration either in other biology fields or especially in skin. And I'm gonna give you a little bit of a sense of how I got to that uh, conclusion uh, as we move forward. And as a big picture, just like Lucy did, I, I do wanna give you a big picture that my goals are to build tools that help measure and treat skin, invasive, skin disease non-invasively. And I wanna do this both for children and for adult patients in a wide variety of diseases, not just neoplasms, but inflammatory conditions as well. And I do think that infrared imaging holds a huge potential for that. But I didn't always know that that's what I was gonna do. I knew the first part. I knew that I wanted to build tools to help measure and treat skin disease because I have a physics PhD. I like measuring things. I like uh, building devices. And I thought skin is all done qualitatively, not quantitatively, I'm gonna quantify skin. But I really didn't know how to get there. And so back when I was actually a pediatrics intern in 2016, there was an email that went around to the, all across the dermatology department from this guy, Mikhail Brizan, who is a optical spectroscopy imaging specialist at WashU. And he had been contacted by the FDA to build uh, some sort of way to monitor generic transdermal patch products and see how much irritation they cause. And he was reaching out to people in dermatology. He just sent a mass email to everybody. Now I wasn't actually on that email list because I was a pediatrics intern. I had not yet started my dermatology residency, but this is where, um, thank you to my mentors for pointing out uh, this opportunity. Like Lucy said, this is like your sponsors. So Susie Bayless, who ended up, be, and who it turns out would then become my fellowship, pediatric dermatology fellowship, um, uh, you know, trainer and teacher and a lifelong friend, um, sent out his email to everyone in the department, but including me, because I, was, I wasn't in the department yet, but she included me. And she said, you know, I would look into this. You never know where it could lead. Might be worth talking. And then as some of you may know, Alana Rossman, who is now the um, residency program director at WashU, also happens to be my wife, and we were married at the time. And she also uh, is a sponsor of mine. Her email was a little bit more direct. It was just like, hey, do you know him? He must be Russian. Um, but that would meant to me, you know, you really should talk to this guy. This is her subtle way of, of giving me a push. So I, I ended up talking to him. Um, I had not started dermatology yet, but I was really interested in the possibility of someone doing imaging interested in skin. And so I said, okay, well, have you imaged skin before? And I came to him and he showed me this paper. And it turns out he hadn't really imaged skin before, but he did image leaves. And he was interested in, in botany applications in the past, but he found something really amazing. He found that if you take a leaf and you just cut it off of a tree and then you dry it for a few hours, you can see some differences by eye. Maybe it's a little bit more shrunken, a little bit more shriveled, uh, perhaps doesn't have the same green luster, maybe a little bit darker, but he imaged it in the shortwave infrared, which I'll tell you about again in a minute, 
Um, and he did some analysis to try to see, are there differences between the dry leaf and the fresh leaf? And kind of amazingly, I'm still kind of amazed by this result, there was a way to look at the data, the spectral data in the shortwave infrared region, which again, to our eyes is completely invisible. But in this shortwave infrared region, the, the leaf that's fresh looks like you can separate it so that in one view, you can't even see the dry leaf, or you can separate it so that in one view, you see only the dry leaf and not the fresh leaf. So there's just fundamental huge differences between these two leaves that even though to our eyes look kind of similar, in the shortwave infrared are literally worlds apart. And I saw that and I was just blown away. And I thought, oh my God, like th there, is, there is some real potential here because it, as you zoom into this shortwave infrared region, you notice that a lot of the chromophores that we think about with our eyes, like blood and melanin, they kind of start to go away and be less dominant. And the dominant chromophores are water and lipid. And though I was just starting in my dermatology career, you know, I had done dermatology as a medical student and, and I was, you know, on a labor and delivery floor or a NICU uh, rotation at the time as a pediatric intern, I did remember that there was this pattern called spongiosis, which was the general, um, and this, it helps to have a wife who's a dermatopathologist, that there's this general pattern called spongiosis where you have fluid accumulation in the skin. And perhaps this would be an excellent model for thinking about quantifying skin inflammation. There's more water in the tissue than the shortwave infrared should give me a really strong signal. And so I propose doing that. Uh, and again, just to, to, to be clear, this was a researcher who had not really thought about skin, um, had been approached by the NIH uh, with an opportunity to do skin research, but didn't have any knowledge about it or, uh, and was looking for collaboration. And, um, taking that meeting was one of the best things I'd ever done because it led to this idea, which is, can we monitor and quantify water in the skin? So the one of the first things we did actually was we just injected some normal saline uh, transdermally, uh, just right underneath the skin, a little, it created a little bump and you could barely see it. It was just a skin colored wheel essentially. Um, with, and this is, you know, taken with a, it, it's here, if you believe it or not, it, it, you could see it a little bit by eye if you looked with side lighting, but you couldn't really see it. Uh, and then we imaged with this shortwave infrared imaging system. And I'm not gonna go into all the details of shortwave infrared, but I'll give you a sense of what it looks like. You can actually cut the image into different components. You can say, I wanna know just the reflected light of 1070 nanometers. Show me the intensity of 1070 nanometers or show me the intensity of just 1340 nanometers or just 1605 nanometers. You can, look at, you can look at this shortwave infrared along any wavelength you like. Now, when you look at an image with an iPhone, you're actually seeing a combination of red, green, and blue channels. You're seeing intensity plots of red superimposed with green, superimposed with blue. And in the shortwave infrared, again, even though this is all invisible to our eye, we can do the same kind of analysis. We can combine red, green, and blue and combine it together. And, and you can see that while in the visible, water is completely invisible, uh, for lack of a better word, in the shortwave infrared, the water signal pops out right at you. And this was very exciting because it confirmed the suspicion that we could see water in the skin and with much higher contrast than in, uh, in the visible range. And so the thought was that if we were to image a case of allergic contact dermatitis, we would see something really powerful. We would see much higher contrast using our hyperspectral shortwave infrared imaging than visible imaging. 
And that's what we did because luckily our senior author ended up getting poison ivy one day after gardening. Um, and uh, we monitored his rash day by day with a typical kind of smartphone camera. And then we imaged it and reconstructed these pseudo uh, red, green, blue channels in the shortwave infrared. And while we saw visibly more contrast and it looked really cool, and I, again, I just keep want to keep hammering the home that what you're seeing here is completely invisible to your eye. These are photons that your eye does not pick up and yet the rash is there. Um, we decided to quantify it because that was the whole goal all along. Can I use this higher contrast to create an index? And what we did was we just said, let's take the intensity of the skin around that's affected by the rash and compare it to the skin that's not affected by the rash and take a ratio that's kind of normalized and dimensionless. What we found with that ratio was that it had this dramatic linear relationship over time up until when the rash essentially faded into the background and then it was flat. This linear relationship is kind of remarkable because you can imagine after a few days predicting how long the rash would persist uh, before it faded into the background. And if you tried to do the same kind of thing with just looking at redness, let me quantify the redness based on my iPhone picture, you can't, you can't do it. it. It doesn't give you an answer that's at all um, that different day to day or predictive of um, future uh, progression of the rash. And so this kind of supports the idea that infrared imaging gives you a more pathophysiologic assessment of inflammation than visible range imaging, and that that can give you some quantitative insights. So we turned this into a paper um, and basically I thought, oh, this is good. I'll, you know, it was a fun project. I'll move on to other stuff. And as I was putting together the my residency research talk that we all give at the end of our, um, of, you know, right before graduating at WashU, I kind of started thinking, you know, there's some real potential here that maybe I need to think a little bit harder about because sure, you know, allergic contact dermatitis, maybe I can quantify patch tests, you know, you know, Jeff would be interested in that with, with patch testing and contact dermatitis, but uh, maybe it's not that much. And I started thinking a little bit more and I realized, you know, if I image, if I extend that melanin absorption line and I keep going towards the shortwave infrared, it starts to become the case that the water signal actually is stronger than the melanin absorption. So there's really not much melanin absorption in the shortwave infrared region. And that means that if you take somebody who's got, let's say, type 4 skin and compare them to type 2 skin, while the visible and range images are different, and we all know this to be true, in the infrared, it kind of looks the same. Um, and that actually makes sense because in the infrared, melanin has a much lower effect. So it started to dawn upon me that actually infrared imaging is going to be less sensitive to skin pigmentation. So not only does it provide quantification of inflammation, but it might also be an excellent tool for assessing inflammation in skin of color and addressing disparities that exist uh, in our current practice, which we all are talking about, thankfully, more and more. And one of the things I want to mention is that as a researcher, people always say, you got to stay focused. This is one of those pearls. Stay focused on what you're doing. Focus on your project. You know, you don't want to get unfocused because you might lose your opportunity. I actually kind of find that for me, uh, being a little bit unfocused can be somewhat of a help uh, because it allows you to see opportunities and connections that may not have been present before. So you probably saw this paper uh, that came out in the New England Journal, a very concerning report around the accuracy of pulse oximetry. Um, this paper in a study of 10,000 patients found that black patients were three times more likely to have an inaccurate pulse oximeter reading in the setting of uh, hypoxia. In other words, their you know, art 
line shows hypoxia, but their pulse ox does normoxia. That is not good for clinical management. And the fact that it was three times more likely to be inaccurate in black patients than white patients suggests a really deep racial bias built into the algorithms or technology driving pulse oximetry. And when I read this, I right away thought about thinking, you know, how can I address this problem using my shortwave infrared ideas? Uh, and again, speaking of mentors and speaking of sponsors, it was around December that Lynn Cornelius, my chief, got uh, an email from Bill Powderly, who is uh, pretty high up at WashU, saying, hey, I, I bet you've seen this. Is there someone who's interested in doing this and thinking about addressing this problem? And she wrote back instantly, hey, you know, Leo's a junior faculty member. He probably has been thinking about it a little bit. I'll reach out to him. And sure enough, I was thinking about it. Uh, and two months later, I, uh, after submitting a grant, I got a $50,000 internal funding award to build a device using the concepts of shortwave infrared imaging to address this problem. And, uh, you know, had I not, had I been staying too focused on the work that I was doing, I would have missed this opportunity completely. So, I, you know, I, there are so many ways that you can give people advice and pearls that end up just kind of reflecting your own survivor bias um, because it's like, yeah, hey, look, all the things I did to succeed, uh, let's ignore all the luck that went into it. But I would say that many of the pearls that sometimes people tell me um, don't necessarily work for me, and I think that's okay. Um, I like thinking about connections with other fields. Uh, and so there's a little bit of lack of focus that, um, that I enjoy and I think help, it works for me. Um, I talk to scientists that do completely different things, people who've never thought about skin disease before, uh, people who work in exotic optical physics technologies. Uh, I happen to speak the physics language so I can talk to them and find out what they're doing and, and consider whether it will apply to the things that matter for us clinically. I also tend to share all of my ideas openly. Um, you know, this internal grant for pulse oximetry Probably some people would say, keep that close until you, that's a big idea. You got to, you know, hold on to it. Don't let anyone know you might get scooped. And I just get too excited to share uh, science because I feel it's a very social enterprise and I just share everything. And so far it's worked out just fine for me. Um, I also just think having a positive attitude in science is helpful. Um, I think it helps with burnout to work on things that interest you. Uh, and if you're not interested in doing it, then there's many, many other things that all of us can be doing that uh, will make us happy. So um, yeah, I, I wanna thank so many people. Um, these are just pictures of people in dermatology, people in dermatology research, my lab, uh, DF funding. I'm hoping for a DP5 funding to come through. We'll see what happens there in the summer. Um, and uh, more examples of me being unfocused. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, I hope you do. It's Leo Schmoo. Uh, you probably saw the saga of my 3D printed head that I made for a project in lab. It worked, I made it, I finally finished it today. So uh, thank you all for your uh, attention. I'll take any questions after. Uh, and if you have 3D printing questions, please follow me on Twitter and, and reach out. So grateful for yet another delightful, brilliant talk. You guys are just wowing us tonight. Um, so it gives me great pleasure to introduce our um, last, but definitely not least, uh, panelists today. Elena Harlwick, who's an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and a pediatric dermatologist at MGH. And she's gonna share with us her story tonight. She is in her third year of her Dermatology Foundation Career Development Award to understand 
pediatric atypical pigmented lesions. Welcome, Elena. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Jeff. And thanks to the SPD and PEDRA. It's great to follow Lucy and Leo. I have a little different take. Um, disclosures are not relevant to this talk, but I'll say I'm married and my spouse has a job, so this comes up often, and I write for UpToDate. And I'll lead off by saying that this talk is not about work-life balance. And I include my family to thank them, and I'm especially thankful that my three children are going to hopefully be asleep and not join us. So I'd like to start just by sharing um, some of the foundation of my early career that has helped me establish my research interest and give some momentum to it. And I think this is relevant at all stages of our careers, and particularly late in residency or fellowship or just starting off. So. When it comes to choosing a research problem, this isn't something that you are wedded to for life. You can change this. And every time you apply for a grant, it's a different problem. And for me, I'm really inspired by my patients and clinical problems are what drives my research interests. So from the beginning as a trainee, I looked around and said, what is interesting? I was really excited about moles. What makes moles? Why are they um, evolving or changing? And um, what makes them into melanoma? Why are they more aggressive? And so for me, really, I, I found that the clinical mentors that I was interacting with really um, drove the exposures that I had that formed these problems. So I'll just spend a moment and say thank you to the crew. And I like to say that I'm here because of all of the people that shaped me back at medical school in Pittsburgh. I thought does, uh, dermatology was very cosmetic until I met Laura Ferris and Joe English. Um, Michael Bigby was my continuity clinic mentor who really helped me focus on patient care as the high priority in, in my practice. Um, my interest in melanoma and moles led me to Henson Sal and Arthur Sober, who have mentored me on this pathway. And then I was finally corrupted into pediatric dermatology by Marilyn Liang and Steve Gellis, who remain close mentors of mine. And so choosing a research problem was influenced by all of these folks along the way, and the people you encounter really do influence your path. Um, for me, patients, of course, starting out in my faculty practice are a high priority. Um, I'm studying a clinical problem, and so my bench research days are in the back seat. I'm very inspired by Leo's work, and, and maybe someday we'll find a way to bring the bench back into what I do, but for now I'm focused on the patients. And so one of the priorities in starting out is really identifying the patients and attracting them to you. And so I have three main points that I like to think about for starting my own practice. I was able to keep an urgent slot. Um, this ensured access for patients. So if anyone knew of a patient with melanoma or interesting Spitz tumor or a congenital nevus, I always had a spot in my schedule. If there was a problem, I'd see them this week, next week, add them late, add them early, and really just making sure that your research interest is a priority in a way that you can accommodate in your practice. I've even been known to go to patients' other appointments and that really um, kind of embeds you in their care team. So as a resident going to the cancer center to meet a patient over there and then see them in my own clinic later, it's, it's a nice way to capture the patient that you hope to work with over time. Um, number two, making sure people know you are interested and available. And this is where it comes down to colleagues and friends. And I have to say most of the congenital nevus patients that I meet have seen someone before they met me. If someone, one of my colleagues is rounding in the hospital and meets a patient that they think is appropriate, they'll say, oh, you should follow up with Dr. Howerluck. They'll send me a name and I'll make sure it happens on the other end. Um, and actually some of my favorite patients have come to me through our residents, 
even as a resident in my own continuity clinic, if the pager went off and someone was taking a call about a patient who was moving from another state with something unusual that might be exciting, I've just been so lucky that people have thought of me as someone that may do a good job of caring for them. And so other people around you will definitely influence your patient access. And number three, that would really also go for other key collaborators outside of dermatology. So it's important to get to know these collaborators for pediatric melanoma, the oncologist, the pathologists, and the surgeons, because patients are introduced to dermatology from a lot of different specialties. And so if your colleagues know that you'd like to help take care of these patients, they can also help kind of set up that referral network that you'll need to have the patient base and do a good job of studying. So shifting gears, your publication record will support your future success. And this was really important for me for my Durham Foundation application and any grant application. And actually, anytime I ask for something, people say, well, why, what is your background? Or why are you an expert? Why should I fund you? So from an early stage, this can happen very easily. Case reports can come from your patients that you're seeing, and they don't have to be something that's necessarily profound in dermatology. So a patient that has a congenital nevus would never make a case report in our literature. But if they have a congenital nevus on the leg or limb, and that affects limb asymmetry and development, that presentation would be very important to share with the orthopedic surgery literature. So you can generate um, case reports pretty easily and, and find the right application. Similarly, review articles are something that are very um, very important. It really helps you stay on top of the literature and also can really help you learn a field well. It's important though also to touch base with an editor of a journal so that you know that the work that you're doing has a destination. You don't want to spend a lot of time writing a review that no one wants to read. And I'll also point out that peer reviewing on the topic that you're excited about actually is a lot of fun. You can see the work that's going on in the area that you're also um, interested in, and it can give you new ideas. It also can help you prepare as an author so that you know how to write and what other reviewers will look for. So in fact, I'm um, one of the associate editors for pediatric dermatology. And if you have a budding interest, please email me and tell me what you'd love to review about. I would be more than happy um, to give you that exposure and opportunity to help with the critical peer review process. It's, it's so important. Getting involved, taking a seat in the table. Um, it doesn't necessarily pertain to your project, but this is how you're going to make connections outside of your home um, and really they can influence your career pathway. And I'm showing Dr. Cordoro here, who of course, as a resident, I knew about her um, publication on the ABCDEs of melanoma, pediatric melanoma. And she was one of the first people that I was looking to meet when I started going to the SPD in Piedra. And it so happens that we're both Steelers fans. So now we are co-founders of the Pediatric Dermatology Pittsburgh Steelers Support Group. We welcome all, if you'd like to cheer for the black and gold, you can reach out to me, we'd be happy to welcome you to that. Um, but it's really through getting involved and going to meetings um, that you get to rub elbows next to other very exciting and wonderful people. Um, for me also, the AAD has a lot of committee work opportunities that begin as a resident. Um, and so you can be a trainee member on an AAD committee and then later as a junior faculty member as well. And right now, actually, the AAD leadership positions are open for applications. It does require a letter of support, and I will write one for any of you. Send me a message. I would love for pediatric dermatology to have the seat 
a seat at the table outside of PD Durham. So it would be great to have representation at these other groups for our specialty. And it's also great for us individually to meet others outside. So create a spark. So now focusing more on your exciting idea. PIDRA is the place to be. I have to say, um, bringing a new project proposal to PIDRA has helped others identify me as someone that's interested in pediatric pigmented lesions. You can find collaborators, and these are folks that you can work with together on wonderful projects. It's also a great place to participate in studies that are underway. So if you're first starting and you don't wanna take a big project on your own shoulders, it is really helpful to get that experience and exposure, and it's such a wonderful welcoming group. Um, one of my first sparks that I like to bring to the table was um, back in 2016, I submitted a project for an abstract. It was a poster and it was on evolution of pediatric spits and atypical nevi. This is a prospective study inviting multiple sites. And literally the poster was this title, a brief abstract describing what we're interested in and this sign-up sheet. I know it's a pretty sad looking poster, but honestly, I had so many names and met people that way and it was great. I'm pretty introverted. So, you know, it was a very easy way to meet the people that it was perfect. Um, fortunately, having worked with other um, students and trainees over time, this spark has evolved over time and it looked a little bit better the last time we got to present it together. And this is Dana, who is um, a rising um, actually, she's a graduating medical student. She's headed, of course, to pediatric dermatology as well. And she did a great job at upgrading what we were able to pre present at the last live PEDRA meeting. Thank you, Dana. And of course, this uh, study is ongoing. So if you're interested, please let me know. Look for presentation opportunities wherever you can find them. And here I'm talking about talks. It's important to apply. You can apply to the AAD. They have a summer meeting that's less competitive. You can apply with a co-mentor that may be um, a faculty member that may be more senior, and that can actually also improve your chances of getting selected. You can apply many times, and I definitely did. Definitely approach your mentors. I was really lucky. My first opportunities to speak at meetings happened because people knew that I was interested and had a talk ready to go. And, you know, it doesn't matter if it happens at the last minute or if there's an opportunity, you just want to seize it. So I'll thank Sheila McGinnis, Jen Huang, HP, all have tapped on my shoulder and I've been grateful to jump in. Um, you can also create your own presentation opportunities. I actually messaged to Julie Schaefer, who is someone that I've always looked up, up to. Um, she's brilliant and remarkable and I was able to work with her to submit a proposal to present at World Congress of Pediatric Dermatology back when it was at Chicago. These types of submissions happen like so far in advance of the meeting. It takes a lot of planning, um, but our senior leaders are very receptive, thankfully, to work together with us um, to help make these proposals happen. And I included Dr. Kinsler in the bottom because actually that World Congress was the first time I was able to meet her in person. And it was through a proposed symposium that I was able to co-direct. So that was awesome. And um, moving on, of course, you want to look for mentorship opportunities. And I can't speak highly enough of the wonderful mentorship that I've had. Um, so the SPD mentorship program where I got to work with Dr. Frieden, the ADLP program is through the AAD and I got to work with Dr. Levy. And um, my mentors know that I'm a little bit relentless as a mentee. I think it's important as a mentee to identify um, questions and bring that to the conversation. And I'm just so grateful to them. It's really influenced my path and, and helped make connections for me. Because at the end of the day, 
we need to convince others that our research ideas are important. It starts in the department. If you don't have your department's support of your time, it's really hard to be successful. Um, moving on to grants and funding, that's really how we get the job done. And so whether it's supporting the time or, or paying for resources, this is vital to be able to express. And really the secret sauce, the most important thing that has helped me as an early investigator have been the trainees that I've been able to convince that the research ideas that I have are important. And so I'm going to end by saying thank you, not to you who are listening, but really thank you to the trainees, um, Diana, Holly, Andrew, Dana, you guys are amazing. And I wouldn't be here giving this talk without the progress that you've made and we've made together. So thank you. This was another uh, brilliant, brilliant talk, Elena. Thank you. This was just an amazing hour of talks from three really stellar, exceptional researchers. Um, I echo Lisa's sentiment on how amazing the three talks are. And I do love that everybody kind of approaches things from a slightly different angle, which I think is really helpful. Because I think one of the take home messages, um, at least for our attendees, and especially some of our more um, junior folks is that there are a lot of different flavors to, you know, career success and success in research. And certainly it doesn't, you don't have to do it one way. And I think we have our panelists show some great examples. One of the questions is for specifically for Lucy, um, how do you decide what to say yes to? Because in one of your slides, you were saying the opportunities come knocking and the key is just to say yes. Um, I think some of us fall into the um, pit of I've said yes to too many things and now I have 30 things that are due tomorrow and I can't get it done. So how do you pick what to say yes to? I don't have a magic formula. I literally just pick yes to or say yes to the things that excite me the most. So for example, when Neil Prose asked me to be an associate editor of pediatric dermatology, I was really excited about it, um, really wanted to do it. And like in my heart, I knew it would take up my time, but in the end, it was worth it for me. It, it actually it energizes me. Um, and so um, I don't regret that decision, but there are certain things that I, I see more as obligations or, you know, I... I should say yes, but it doesn't excite me or energize me. And those are the things I usually say no to. I don't know if Elena or Leo have anything, um, anything to add here as well. I have a really hard time saying no. I think it's just really hard. Um, but over time, I've learned that the things that get cut when my plate is too full are not worth it. So I think it really, at the end of the day, I have to think about the things that keep me balanced outside of work and whether I'm saying yes to too much and kind of make my priority list and go from there. It's hard. I like Lucy's idea of see what sparks joy. And if it doesn't, then uh, don't do it. Um, I will say, I, I think, you know, sometimes being honest with like, am I the only person who can do this? Is this something that's so special, you know, and so specialized that I'm the only one who can do this? Or is this like an opportunity for me, but it could be a good opportunity for someone else. Um, and then I, I think it's easier to say no if you realize that they're going to be other that this is an important thing to do, but other people can do it too, and that's okay. You know, I think I have the hardest time saying no when I convince myself that there's something special about this app that's specific to me. Um, but I think the more this is why you have to talk to your colleagues and friends and know what they're doing because the more you know, the more you can be like, you know what, it's not good for me, but it's perfect for this person. Uh, and then it makes it, I think, also easier to say no. Lisa, did you have something to add there too? Yeah, no, I was just going to add, um, in addition to what you all said, that, you know, it does, it, part of the challenge of success is also 
being able to figure out what to say no to because that opens so many more opportunities. So if those of you remember Jason Freed, who uh, runs Basecamp and was at our PEDR meeting about a year ago, you know, I, I he texts me every once in a while and is like, how many meetings are you on for 10 hours a day? What are you not saying no to? Just thinking that, you know, sometimes that really does open another door for you to say yes to other things, but also understanding that, especially in the beginning, you want to be as open and available as possible so that you can create all these opportunities. I was going to maybe segue um, to a question that is a nice dovetail to this one, which has to do with, you know, how do you balance work and life with getting your research off the ground, knowing that it's always going to be easier to see patients. Um, it's going to, in some ways, take less time, but maybe be less satisfying. Um, and I think all of you really spoke to this idea of, you know, the antidote to burnout is the intensity of your passion for a question you're really an, an expert at. So I, I would love to hear some thoughts about how you keep it all together and, and manage that, that tricky work-life thing, which never really is balanced. I mean, it's just really hard. And I look to other people for examples because I'm really not the person that you should be looking to as a role model unless you want to do like a crash course study on how to mess this up. I have to say like research encroaches on sleep, clinic encroaches on research. And I think just finding the most important things to me, I, I think right now um, I like to think about the people that I'm working with and that is a priority. Um, I think clinic is hard right now. There are a lot of clinic demands and a lot of our supports went away when COVID happened. So right now I'm not in balance. I think in the pre-COVID area, I was hitting a really nice stride with it, but I am back to the drawing board. So let's pass off to one of you other guys. I, I feel a little bit like it's unfair for me to talk about work-life balance because I have a partner who kind of takes care of our entire household and the entire residency and does everything in a superwoman. So like, you know, there's nothing really special about me. I just married well, <laughs> you know, um, but I do think that uh, it's easy to um, feel guilty for taking time for yourself. And I think that um, my, my feeling is that I get a lot done by going for a walk. Um, I get a lot done by having a quiet moment. I get new ideas, I, I really do. And I actually become, I can be very productive churning things out, but feeling um, overwhelmed and unsatisfied when I do that. But if I clear my mind and take the time to allow myself to think, uh, then my excitement and enthusiasm suddenly is crazy. And I get into almost a hypomanic state. So I, I think like I have colleagues in other fields like interventional radiology that don't have the same kind of protected time that I have in research. And they have their, <laughs> they have their friends, uh, their clinical colleagues say, oh, uh, I didn't realize you were at work today. Oh, it's, it's your research day. You know, like kind of like uh, if you're not doing clinical work, you're not being productive. And I unabashedly will tell my clinical colleagues that I get paid to take a walk. That's my job because that's part of thinking and doing, and that's okay. And I think that you have to be very uh, 
honest with yourself about how your process works and protect that time and things will work out. It's a really tough question, Lisa. And I echo everything that Elena and Leo have said. Um, I didn't share my talk. I have a son and I'm married to a husband. Um, my husband is amazing, like Leo's wife. Um, he cooked for me today and um, we had takeout yesterday because we were just both fried from work. Um, we eat a lot of take uh, takeout now. Um, we have an infant son, he's nine months old. Um, chaotic at home. Um, sometimes I try to do work while I watch him. The last time I did that, he took my pen and drew a mustache on his face. So <laughs> 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 it's just chaos. It's what it is. Some things that I've been striving to do that I haven't done yet are, um, I, I dream of closing my email when I write, so I'm not distracted by email. Um, I also dream of a full day of writing, um, but inevitably someone schedules an, a meeting sometime during that that blank day of writing. Um, and I, I, I try to stay focused um, on one task at a time, but it's, it's difficult. And um, I, like Leo, like time to think, which is why sometimes I use a pen and paper um, and not my computer when I'm, when I'm trying to think out a, a grant or think out my research plan going forward. Um, and it sometimes works and it sometimes doesn't. All right, that's perfect. Um, well, so the time is now nine, um, a little bit past 9.30 and I wanna be respectful of everybody's times, but it seems like one of the take home messages is make sure you marry well um, and get the support that you need in addition to having a very supportive mentor as well as very supportive chairs um, and then having a great project idea. I think having a, um, hang your shingle and having a specialty like what Elena was saying and really marketing your expertise out there I think it sometimes also get you the opportunities that you're looking for, like what Lucy has done and what Leo has done as well. So I wanna thank our three fantastic um, panelists for coming on and talking to us tonight. And I hope everybody who's attending got something out of this because I know I certainly did. So until um, the next Peter webinar, I hope you guys all have a great night. Thank you guys so much.